I don't need to add any words to what you've just seen for us to all agree that this has been quite a year. In fact, this has been a year full of tension. I don't know if you noticed it around you or noticed it on the news, I'm sure you have, but most of us also notice it within ourselves that we live on edge. Thank God we've come to the time of peace in the Christmas season, right? Well, the truth is, to be really honest, that Christmas also can be a very tense time. I just think about so many uh, young marrieds among us, newly marrieds, when you're in that point and you're trying to figure out how you do Christmas, and you find out your, your families do Christmas differently. For instance, in Stephanie's family, when you gave gifts to each other, you know, that in my family, we would all one at a time unwrap our gift and go around the circle. In her family, you'd just give all the gifts out and everybody just together would unwrap it. I thought that is so ungodly. And they would just all unwrap it. And then, you know, it's like Christmas morning. I grew up where, you, where Santa Claus just put the, the toys out. And when you got out, you came and they were all laid out on your chair and you knew what you got. And her family, you, um, you know, you had to wrap them. And so you had to work through all that tension about what you did on Christmas. And I've not even brought up, whose family do you spend Christmas Day with? Anybody ever been through that? Raise your hand. You know, we're going to her family, we're going to my family. I think that may be the greatest motivation to have children. So you can have family in your own, you have Christmas in your own home, right? Because there's so much tension. And we know this next month is going to be full of tension in all kinds of directions. Let me see if I can get this a little better. All right. And this morning, we're going to look at a passage about Christmas you may have never looked at before. It's in Revelation chapter 12. And this is the birth story of Jesus, but it's a different birth story than the one you and I grew up with. You would never take the story we read today and make it into a Hallmark card. It just doesn't fit. Because when John gives Jesus' birth story in Revelation, it takes place in the heavens, not in Bethlehem. You see, when we go to Bethlehem the next few weeks, it's tense enough that the Savior of the world, the Son of God, was born in a cave and placed in a feeding trough. That's not really easy. But when you come to this story, you're going to see in this scene, there's not going to be angels singing, there's going to be angels fighting. There won't be peace on earth at this moment, there will be war in heaven. You say, buddy, why would you preach on that for Christmas? And why, why would John give this kind of Christmas story? I mean, let me tell you, it's because the time that John and the people around him were living in. The, the church was undergoing persecution. The world had gone crazy, and they're living in tension. And, and John wants them to see that be, despite the tension, God is still in control. Despite apparent defeat, there actually is victorious Jesus. In fact, we're going to see in this chapter our arch enemy, Satan, strikes out. Well, with that introduction, let's get in there. Revelation chapter 12, if you have your Bible, let's go to the verses 1 and 2, and let's watch it. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Now, who is this woman? 
this is the key to understanding this whole chapter. Remember the symbolism of Revelation. This woman represents the people of God. Anytime you see 12, that's the people of God. Now, as we go through the story, the metaphor will change. Here at the beginning, it's the people of Israel, the people with whom the Messiah will come through. Then we're going to get to this incredible birth scene, and Mary will represent the people of God. And then after Mary goes from the scene, we'll begin to see the church represent the woman, the people of God, the bride of Christ. Now, she's given birth. This is a painful scene. There's no anesthetic. There's no epidural. In fact, go go with me to verse 3, and we'll see what's really going on. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. What a scene. Like I said, this would not make a good uh, Hallmark card. You think this one would sell? You got this woman in the travels of childbirth. You got this red dragon. Who is the red dragon? We're going to see throughout this chapter, the dragon is Satan. And he tells us a lot about Satan here in these verses. He says that Satan is red, he's violent. He's got seven heads, he's intelligent, he's clever. He's got ten horns, he's extremely strong. What is he doing here? Look in verse verse 6 with me. No, verse 4, excuse me. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Talking about a dragon. Watch this one. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God to his throne. What a story. It's obvious here, isn't it? The child is Jesus. That he'll rule with an iron scepter was a prophecy about what the Messiah would be like. And now we know what the dragon was up to. He wants to nip this whole God coming to earth in a bud. He wants to stop it in its tracks. As, As Mary dilates to ten and the crown of Jesus' head begins to show, the dragon is hovering over her, ready to destroy and devour the child. What a scene. Then look at verse 6. The woman fled into the wilderness to place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of 1260 days. You see, the, the child is snatched up. And now the interest shifts to the mother, who flees to the wilderness. Now what's going on here? Satan is coming after the baby Jesus. But here's what I want you to know this morning. Here's what I want you to remember. Satan strikes out. We've just seen strike number one. Strike one, he fails to devour Jesus. Now, I don't know if you notice here, but there's a really condensed story of the gospel here. All John gives us is, is the birth and the ascension. The baby is born and then the baby is snatched back up to heaven. But listen, what you see here is what's going on in between is this war. There's a war here at the birth. Can Satan snatch 
defeat out of victory. There's going to be a war when Jesus begins his ministry in the wilderness and Satan comes after him and tempts him. There'll be a war when Peter says, you don't have to go to a cross. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. There's going to be a battle in the Garden of Gethsemane where the snake slithers up and tempts Jesus to take another path. And then there'll be that last temptation of Christ on the cross where the war will break out. And so we've got the birth, we've got the ascension, and we've got this war. And here's what's going on here. Jesus Christ is proving himself to be the rightful ruler, not Satan. So now let's go to verse 7. You see, the immediate result of the birth story is not Christmas carols on earth, it's war in heaven. Look at verse 7. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But the dragon, he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Strike number two. He fails to defeat Michael. Michael is the the top angel. He's the archangel. In in the birth story, as we go through here, we're going to meet two angels. We're going to see Gabriel, who's the one who makes the announcement to Mary. Gabriel is the announcing angel. He's got the good job. Michael, all through Scripture, is the warrior angel. So in the middle of this story, not only is Herod killing the children... Not only is everything physical on earth going against Jesus, but in the heavens, there's this battle between the archangel Michael and the dragon. And the good news is that the dragon strikes out again, and Michael wins. So then go to verses 13 and 14. Let's watch the final strike. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, The woman was given the two wings of great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and a half a time out of the serpent's reach. Strike number three. He fails to defeat the church. He can't injure the child, so he goes after the mother. Part of this is symbolic of Mary and Joseph fleeing to Egypt. But this time, about three and a half times, is really symbolic of a short period of time. It's the period of time that we live in, where Satan roams the earth and God's people do battle. You see, if he couldn't injure the child, he wants the mother. I mean, we see this when, remember when Saul was persecuting the church and Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus? What did Jesus say to him? What did he ask him? Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? This all could have said, I'm not persecuting you. What are you talking about? I'm persecuting the church. But listen to me. To persecute the church, the bride of Christ, is to persecute Christ. So he fails to destroy the church. In this short period of spiritual attack, the church is protected. Jesus told us this, Matthew 16, verse 15. He says in that confession that he's the Son of God, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will never prevail over it. 
Through time, the church has always prevailed because God has predestined His church for eternal glory. That's already been decided. A lot of times we get really confused when we see that word predestined in the Bible. And there are some who would make us believe that predestined means he chose you and he didn't choose me. And he chose this guy and rejected her before he saw. In the Bible, guys, listen, predestination is almost always about a group of people. And the teaching is that this group of people, the church, that God is going to protect the church and it will be glorified. So, he can't beat Jesus, he can't beat Michael, he can't defeat the church. What's he can do? Now buckle up, brothers and sisters, because now he's coming after you and I. Look at verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Who are those? Those who keep God's commands and hold fast to the testimony about Jesus. What's going on here? Satan, the defeated enemy, now targets individual Christians through accusation and deception. He couldn't devour Jesus. Remember what we studied back in Peter this summer, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2. The devil is like a roaring lion roaming the earth, seeking whom he might devour. And God's what he's doing in your in my life right now, and he's seeking to devour us as individuals. He is angry. He is so mad. The, the, the scripture will actually say he is full of fury. He's been defeated. He can't take it out on God. And so he chooses to take it out on you and I. And he's come after us. His time is short. His power is restricted. And he roams the earth. He was unable to destroy the church, so he targets her offspring. You say, well, how does he do this? There's, there's two key words in this chapter that tell you how Satan attacks you. And I want you to, to be looking at which, which way does he attack you. One is through accusation, okay? The devil is the accuser. He's like the prosecuting attorney. Remember the devil in front of God when it came to Job? And that's what he does in our life. You, you might call him, I think in the first century, they might have called him the informer. There was a lot of that going on in the first century. Like if, if you were living for Christ and your neighbor found out about it, they could report it to the Roman government and you would be in trouble. An accusation would be brought up about you. And guys, that's what Satan does. That's what he's so affected at. He constantly accuses us. How about in your life? What accusation does he use in your life? Does he accuse you over and over about that past sin that you repented of? Does he tell you over and over that you're really not worthy to be a part of God's family? That what you, how you've lived disqualifies you? That so-and-so in this place might really be fired up for Christ but could never be you? That everything you touch is a mess up in your life. And so why would you think you could be a Christian? He's going to constantly accuse you. Normally, it's in your own mind. Sometimes it's through people. But here's what you can do. Through these accusations, he can make you feel guilty on end. And he can make you paralyzed forever living for Jesus. Now, his other 
tool is deception. We know that Satan is the father of lies. He is so powerful at deception that Scripture says at times he can even appear not as a red dragon, but as an angel of light. In our lives, he's powerful enough to make bad things look good and to make good things look bad. Look at our culture. The things that are good and wholesome and right are made fun of and looked at as just boring. How would anybody want to live that life? The things that are evil and perverted are looked at as the reason you should want to live your life. Satan's just that power because he can bring deception. He can bring theological deception. Let me get, I'm going to give you a few real specific issues right here about deception. One would have to do with this chapter because we see the Virgin Mary in this chapter. And let me say this. Now, when you read the Christmas story, you can't help but walk away and have incredible respect for Mary. As Protestants, sometimes I think we have not given Mary her rightful place. She's amazing of what she does. We'll look at that over the next few weeks. But it's one thing to base this on Scripture that informs us who Mary was. It's another thing when we go beyond Scripture and, as some would do, decide that Mary was immaculately conceived, just like Jesus. That Mary was a perpetual virgin, even though we know Scripture, she had children. That actually a teaching that Mary never sinned. She was perfect, like Jesus. And Mary never died. You think I'm making this up? You can go to the doctrine of, and you can find it. She never died. She ascends just like Jesus. If you're not careful, she turns into almost a co-redeemer. Not quite on the level of Jesus, but close. Close enough that you can pray to her. My friends, that's why we have Scripture to say what's true and what's not true. That's a theological illustration. For most of us, that's not our issue. Most of it's, it's moral. It's moral deception. We, we come to a place in even Christian culture where premarital sex is almost a given. Or if you're a teenager or a college student or single, if you're not having sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend, that you're probably just, you're out of it. And I'm, I'm shocked by the amount of people. In one hand, it makes me feel good. In the other hand, it makes me uncomfortable. Who will come up to me and tell me that they're living with their girlfriend or boyfriend like I should not think anything about it. We've been deceived that this beautiful, beautiful thing meant for marriage is now destroying us as a culture. Let me give you another example. I think this is rampant right now. One of Satan's great deceptions is that the church is not important. This church that, that God protects. Because all of us have grown up. We've seen the messes of the church. We see it's messy business. So it would be a lot easier for you to say, you know what? I just don't want to fool with the church. I love Jesus and I'm be good to my neighbors and I'm going to serve. But I don't have to deal with those people. Listen to me. That's the easy way out. That's the unloving way, because when we have to deal with each other, we have to learn to really love. And Satan wants to tell you, it's not important for you to, to be in church. It's not important for you to be involved in church. That's just, you know, if you want to, you can. If you don't want to, you don't have to. My friends, I, I'm just going to say this as plain as possible. Whoever believes that did not get it from the Bible. It's just not there. 
And that's why we've got to stay embedded in Scripture, because Scripture is the lie detector that tells us what's true and what's false. So here's Satan. He couldn't get Jesus, couldn't defeat Michael, couldn't defeat the church, so he's after us. Now, I'm going to give you now the really good news. The good news is that we can overcome. The good news is that we can be victorious. As the accuser, he makes you feel guilty about things you shouldn't feel guilty about. As the deceiver, he makes you feel not guilty about something you ought to feel guilty about. So how do we win? Go back in the middle of this chapter to the greatest part of this chapter. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 through 12. Listen to what he says. Now has come the salvation and power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Here we go. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. Oh, yes, he's filled with fury, but the victory is ours. And, and, and this here's what I want to end on, guys. Three keys to victory. Number one is the blood of the Lamb. You realize that God always believed that violation of who he was, of, of sin always cause death. And, and, and symbolically to take it away, there was the death and the shedding of blood of a lamb. And Jesus finally shows up as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. He is the perfect sacrifice for our sins. So Jesus covers our sins. You say, what's the big deal? The dragon, Satan, that old serpent, has nothing to accuse you of. Why? Because when God sees you because of the blood of Jesus, he sees perfection. He has no right to accuse you when your sins are atoned for. And as far as God is, they're not only forgiven, they're forgotten. So if Satan was in any way able to bring himself back as the persecutor before the throne of God and say, you know what, man, Jacob, man, he, he's a sinner. Man, look at Jessica. Man, look over here at Rob. Let me tell you, let me tell you, God, about all the messed up things they've done. Because of the blood of Jesus, God is going to shake his head and he's going to say, I know nothing about it. There is no room for accusation. And that brings us this moment to this moment today of, of communion. So if you go ahead and take out your cup, I want us to take communion together. Just hold for a second. Don't start opening it to uh, give you something to think about. I guess you didn't believe me. <laughs> Just hold on to it for a second. Thank you for getting it. Here's what I want you to think about this morning. What is the accusation that Satan keeps bringing up to you? What, what keeps you guilty all the time? 
what paralyzes you from really being on fire for God? Because Satan says, you're not worthy. You couldn't do it. I want you to think of that accusation. But then as you drink of this cup that represents the blood of Jesus, I want you to embrace your forgiveness. I want you to know that because of Jesus, there's no room for accusation. And you don't sit here during communion in guilt. You sit here, sit here in communion in joy. Let's pray together. God, we thank you, God, for this picture of this war. God, so often we're so blinded to spiritual warfare. But God, is going on whether we see it or not. And Lord, today we claim the victory that we have overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb. And so as we take of this bread and remember the body of Jesus, and today especially as we drink of this juice which represents his blood, Lord, help us to embrace the fact that there's no accusation that will stick. Because of what Jesus has done, the very worst about us is now untrue. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a couple more minutes. What an amazing proclamation you have just given in song. That not only did he overcome, but we overcome. And the song gives the very words that were used in Revelation. We've seen point number one. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Point number two is we overcome by the word of our testimony. You see, we get now to participate in the victory that's been won for us in Christ. If we believe this story, then we are witnesses of the power and the grace of God. And we must tell it. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. The word power there literally means it's the dynamite of God. We've been given this amazing story of a God who fights all odds to come to this earth, to be born as a baby in a manger, to defeat the forces of Satan on earth and in heaven, to be victorious through his death, burial, and resurrection. We have a story to tell. And we know the end. We know that the dragon is defeated. And when Jesus comes the second time, he will not come as a baby in a feeding trough. He will come on a white stallion as a victorious warrior. We've got something to share. And then at the last point, we overcome by our willingness to lay our lives down. These early Christians, they're under persecution. They've been informed. Thousands of them are losing their lives. That's why John writes this book. The scripture we read said they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. They believed this story so much. They knew the victory in the long run that they were willing to put up with little skirmishes and defeats in the short run. You see, the question for them was, are you willing to, to die for Jesus? Right now, we don't face that. One day we might. The question for you and I is, am I willing to live for Jesus? You see, even today, in the year 2020, there are 100,000 Christians who've been martyred across the world. It's happening. 
But for you and I, the decision goes back to, am I going to live my life in Jesus' name? Guys, we've got too many diversions and idols that keep us back from wholehearted devotion to Jesus. You see, our response to the Christmas story is not to be afraid and shut the door and lock the latch and drink our hot chocolate and sing Christmas carols. Well, that's part of it. Our response is to walk out the door praising God for the victory with a double-edged sword in our hand. We get to participate in the victory. So this book is so appropriate. It was written to Christians in tense times, in times where everything looked bad, in times where you just looked and you thought everything is defeated. And John wants to remind them that when Jesus was born in the spiritual realm, it looked like God would be defeated before the story ever started. But God was more powerful and the dragon was slain and thrown down. And that's the reason for our title for this series, Beautiful Tension. Almost sounds like they don't go together. But you've experienced in your life, and I've experienced it in my life, that life is full of tension. Yet God has the ability and the power and the grace to bring beauty and joy through tense times. He did it at the birth of Jesus where we we celebrate this story of a God who comes to a virgin, my goodness, and is born in a manger and put in a feeding trough. It doesn't look like the victory of God, and yet we know there's so much beauty in this season. The beauty shows up in the most unlikely place on a cross, an instrument of execution, the worst symbol in the ancient world. And yet to us, because we know that's where Jesus secured our, va- our, our salvation, and that's where the blood of the Lamb was shed, we see a cross as something of beauty to hang around our neck or put on top of a building. And here's what God's trying to say to you and I. Life is pretty crazy right now, and there's a lot of tension going on. But it's in those moments where everything looks the worst, where it appears the world is falling apart, that God is able to bring beauty out of tension. So this morning, I don't know what's going on in your life. Maybe you're tense about the election or tense about government or tense about the climate or tense about all the storms or the wildfires or maybe it's personal tension in your marriage or with your children or disappointment in your grandchildren or financial tension or job tension or friendship tension. You name it, it's out there. Here's what God wants you to know in this season. He's powerful enough to bring beauty out of that. If he could do it from here, if he can do it from there, he can do it here. So I'm so excited about this series, Beautiful Tension. I hope you'll join us for all of us. I thank so much the people that are online with us today. I hope this has been as impactful online as it has been here in person because the worship has been incredible. Am I, after what we've studied, we serve a God who deserves all of our worship and praise. So please keep joining us for this. 
As you're exiting today, please turn in your connection card and your offering online. You'll see the places where you can do the very same thing. But I'd like us to, to all stand if we would, and I'd like us to pray before we leave. Father, I know I need this lesson. I, I, I believe that we need this lesson. I thank you that John gave another birth story. Not a, not a contradictory story, but a fuller story. And Lord, I pray for us that we will see that it's not just a pandemic going on. It's not just controversy about masks. It's not just a crazy election season. It's not just terrible weather. It's not just tension in my marriage or with my children or at work. There is more than our eyes see. In the middle of everything I've just named, there is spiritual warfare. And Satan is seeking to do to us what he could not do to Jesus, and that's devour us. And so, Father, today we thank you that we find victory in the blood of the Lamb, in the word of our testimony, and that we are willing to live our lives and even die if called upon. I pray in this season where so many people are so negative, a season where Christmas seems almost impossible to celebrate, that we will be the people who share the testimony that as bad as things can look, absolute victory has been won. And that Jesus has been proclaimed the ruler of the universe. Oh yes, we recognize that Satan is alive. We recognize that his power is great and yet it is also contained. And we know his time is short. So Father, help us to walk out of these doors with the double-edged sword of your word. Help us not to listen to the accusation of the evil one or to believe his deceptions, but help us to live in the absolute victory that you have proven over and over on earth and in the heavens is yours. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.